0: and uh, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions, including, well, what do I say when? And well, what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, Common Core Psychology Services. I'm doing this two-part series on sensory processing. And kids from hard places are all kids, really. Lots of kids even from really sweet places have mysterious and or distinctly individual sensory processing needs. So welcome back. This is part two in the series. If you didn't check out part one yet, I think I would really recommend it. I separated the two on purpose because in order to be able to apply some of what we talk about with sensory processing to daily life with kids, it's important that you kind of believe (laughs) what I was talking about in part one, the introduction to sensory stuff. It, because what I'm going to talk about today are the are the how to make this work for you on a daily basis, right? A lot of doing my what I would do in my work is concrete conversations or tips for day to day stuff. Because even when we understand the theory of how interacting with our kids in different ways is supposed to shape behavior. The how do I do this Tuesday piece is really important as well. So part one of this series is a deeper dive look at how we understand the sensory processing system. For today's purposes, I'll just say it's like a switchboard. It's the part of our body that takes in constant input from the world around us. If if you pause for a moment right now and consciously become aware of what you're seeing, in the background, maybe, maybe you're doing dishes like what's behind, what do you see in your full visual field? What do you hear? There's a fan in my office that I'm not aware of unless I stop and I can shift my ears to tune into it. What are you touching? How does that back of your chair feel against your body? Um, is there a taste? I have a residual chai taste <laughs> in my mouth right now. Um, are you still, are you moving? Sensory systems factor this information in. And for those of us who have organized sensory systems, well-developed ones, we file things away quickly at an intensity that makes sense for our bodies and in a way that almost happens unconsciously. For kids who have um, differentially developed sensory systems or... um, undeveloped, less developed, unevenly developed sensory systems, or have specialized sensory needs because of trauma in their life, early exposure to various things that have impacted brain development, the sensory functioning doesn't stay unconscious and automatic and like a switchboard doing its thing flawlessly. There are dropped calls and hitches and, and loud moments and... I, I mentioned in the other episode too, that, that what what are the subtle things happening around the world for most of us become like a fire hose or a disco ball. Oh. <laughs> that's funny. Not a disco ball, <laughs> a strobe light. <laughs> Confused my party, my party tools. So um, <laughs> that's funny. Become like a strobe light, which is uncomfortable. We know, I know from years and years and years of practice and spending lots of time um, both on my living room couch and in my office couch, that sensory dysregulation, sensory uneven input can really impact behavior. It contributes to restlessness and defiance and uh, the need to move and and make noise and crash into things and and run away from places kids are supposed to be. It can be eating rigidity or or sleep problems or all kinds of things. Episode one goes into a few more details about that. But suffice to say that I'm here today in this episode to help parents understand, okay, I get it, I got it. If my kid has sensory processing issues, they're experiencing input from the world in ways different from the way that I might, and that issue can derail our daily functioning and our daily routines. So now what do I do with that, right? I mentioned that I had the the pleasure of working with a great occupational therapist who helped me start to translate what was happening for my child into ways to understand him as a sensory being, and then be able to give him what his body and his spirit and his mind needed in terms of a caring adult who's attuned and wants him to calm down, and did it in a way that helped His sensory system receive what I was offering and help bring his frontal lobe and his calming, soothing nervous system as well as his frontal lobe back online. We want both. We want the calming, soothing part of the nervous system to kick in and teach him to regulate. And we want him to come out of that protective lizard brain survival fight or flight part of his brain and come back online and be able to talk and reason and and be soothed. That's that's what we're hoping for, right? So today we're gonna talk a little about about how do I turn this sensory knowledge into actual things in my home that are gonna be helpful. Pro tip number one, (laughs) prevention is key, right? Prevention is enormous. Most of my work consists of parents and teachers coming to me and saying, ultimately, my kid has these behaviors, what do I need to do when she does them so that they never happen again? Like, what is the consequence that I can impart when an unwanted behavior happens so that it'll, that behavior will be done forever? I'll never deal with it again. And whew, we change that. It's not coming back. I have some bad news. <laughs> Rarely do behavioral interventions work that way. The magic is not in the punishment or the consequences. Yes, we shape behaviors, but... No, it isn't the magic thing that happens after a behavior that leads to a child incorporating the ability to change behavior. It's a lot of the prevention and understanding what to happen during misbehavior, followed by, sure, there are times and places for consequences, and we'll talk about that. But the first piece, pro tip one, prevention, know what is likely to be challenging. Think about your kid's day. Start to recognize the patterns in the times of day that they're having difficulty regulating. That's my other big keyword if you're a follower fan. Uh, Rather than like they're having bad attitude or they're just not listening, whatever I was thinking about, they're dysregulated. Something's out of whack. So start to think, what times a day is my child dysregulated? Is it when they're hungry? Is it always in the morning? Is it in the afternoon when they're fried from school? Is it pre-bedtime? So start to think about the times of day, who's around, is it harder when a sibling is in the room? Do they tend to push one parent more than the other? And we'll get curious about that. Is it a response to changes in routines, right? What are are the times of day and the factors that lead to your child being a little bit off? Once you've looked at kind of some scheduling triggers, you can also look at specific triggers like, like, Unfairness. Unfairness is a huge trigger for lots of kids. Um, perceived unfairness in a class, with siblings, with parents changing their mind. Um, so unfairness can be a big trigger. Bedtime itself can be a trigger. Math or writing could be triggers for some kids. Being teased by peers about something, right, can can be an enormous trigger for dysregulation. Mealtimes. Parents talk about mealtimes is hard. Any transition Um, for some kids, it's like the fear they made a mistake. So they think they made a mistake and now they dysregulate even further because they feel guilty or worried about what's going to happen because they made a mistake. These are the kinds of things that you want to get really good at noticing in your kid's life. What are the specific behaviors that your kid does that are tough? Whether it's throwing himself on the ground or she hits someone or stomps off and slams doors or um, sneaks things or, uh, you know, what, what are the behaviors? Not, they have a bad attitude. They just don't listen. Um, But like, what is the concrete behavior that is getting in the way of family flow and attachment? And then look to be as specific as you can about times of days, locations, who your kid is with, how it relates to hunger and, and sleep. And then what are the spark moments? What are the spark moments that that you know is going to be like a flip the switch trigger with other kids, with their academics, being told no, things like that. So... I can't say enough. You know, with kids, I talk about becoming a detective and using your eye spy eye and I'll get a little magnifying glass. Let's study. Let's look for clues. Let's see what we can notice happens just before you're having big feelings or the volcano erupts, what happens before that volcano erupts. So getting really good at noticing patterns and antecedents, that thing that happens before a challenging behavior is super important equally important is knowing what soothes your kid. And this is actually cool. I have a free, if you go to my website, drlauraanderson.com, I have a list of triggers and soothers on there that I have pulled together from a sensory standpoint. I look at auditory triggers, things that set kids off that come in through their auditory pathways, and then soothers, Visual triggers, visual soothers. Um, A visual soother, an example of is like a snow globe. If you have a kid who's kind of squirrely and and dysregulated and and you shake up a snow globe and they are to take deep breaths until the snow settles or uh, an hourglass timer that can turn and they're just breathing deeply while they watch that uh, sift and sort. Some kids are really responsive. Glitter tubes and sticks folks will make for exactly that same reason. There's, If if they're highly visually stimulable, then they can also be highly visually calmable in that regard. So to be thinking about your child, first and foremost, what you've noticed over uh, time can be... Um, when, when are they calm, right? A lot of times in child psychology, people come in and we're looking at when do things go wrong, more or less. This is an invitation to look at and to think about when do things go right. So when is your child actually at their best uh, in terms of, of staying regulated, feeling soothed and calm? Do you notice that they're under heavy blankets when they're watching movies and they're mellow? Are they best when they're allowed to tear around in free space and open fields outside and they can move? At their gymnastics class, do they end up really uh, tuned in with listening ears on, right? What can you learn about your kid if that kind of movement and flipping and cartwheels and deep tissue impact and and moving in space that actually is calming for them. There's a big hint in that, right? So stop and pause for a moment and look for when your child is at their best. What's happening in the environment around your child? What's happening in their sight, smell, taste, touch, sound? Is their body in motion? Is their body receiving touch or deep tissue pressure in some kind? Get really curious about what is part of the recipe that leads to calm and regulation for your kid. Because there are big hints there for you in terms of what your soothers are likely to be. I've worked with families over time who were having homework battles and a kid who was squirrely and, and wouldn't be able to sit still and really energetic. And, and they tried, you know, lap buddies, the weighted things in in their lap. And there's something about that pressure in the lap that just was grounding for a kid. And they breathed and they could focus. I've had parents get a lot of use out of temperature, either the heating pad that folks that kids found really soothing, or cooling. You know, wet your tennis uh, wristbands in water and ice water, and that that actually had a um, a a soothing cooling impact on some kids. Um, And so, if you check out that list of triggers and soothers. I divided them up, and it's not an exhaustive list, but I did think of lots of them, right? Sometimes kids need to jump and run. Uh, I talk about how when my child was about four, he could do 105 consecutive cartwheels. <laughs> Claim to fame coming up right here. 105. There was a group of teachers with me when I lived overseas who watched that happen, and he wasn't dizzy. His body needed, he was sensory seeking, he needed movement, and spinning and swinging uh, in particular, Um, it was torture to try to get him out of a swing at the playground. Like it was really regulating for him to be swinging or spinning or um, cartwheeling. So be thinking about things that help your child be calm and be safe with others and be in the groove. So looking for a strength-based thing, but to inform you specifically so that you can imagine using what you learn about when your child is at their best to help when they're having trouble I also think about using the sensory lens to think about how to connect with your kiddo too. Because if you learn that your child is a bouncer, runner, hopper, like can you play on hippity hops? Um, back the one I had in and out of my barn as a kid in Maine. Can you can you ride a hippity hop around with your kid? Yoga balls, great tools if you're bouncing a kid on a yoga ball, rolling back and forth on it on your back, you know, to do an open backbend exercise putting yoga ball on your child's ankle and rolling it up to their ribs can be really soothing as a deep tissue exercise. And you're staying connected and you're staying playful. And as you'll see, what we're going to talk about today is you use these things um, preventatively. You, you build them into your kiddo's day. Build them in intermittently because we don't just wait until they're losing it in the grocery store to try to you know do a yoga ball routine in aisle seven right next to the rice road and other things (laughs) i've had my kid cartwheel in supermarkets by the way i was that person but um and it helped very quickly for the record Um, but So you're thinking about prevention, you're thinking about what do I know about how my child is at their best, the sit and spins. If you've got a small child, um, allowing one mattress or one gymnastics mat where your kid can crash, smash, jump, bang, drop forwards and backwards. Can you build in those activities during your day for younger kids so that you're front loading the soothing that their system needs? before misbehavior happens it'll help them stay regulated if you imagine that the sensory input you're giving them through the soothing things helps regulate their system then they're going to be able to tolerate more input from the world around them key principle there so if we're doing these brain bridge building activities, sensory integration activities, and hopping, bouncing, right side, left side, cartwheels, and wiggle worms, and things like that, we are helping their body regulate so that the incoming stimulation later that day, at that moment, is not as jarring or as strobe-lighty. If you have a kid who needs like deep muscular work, you can think about things like wheelbarrow walking, you know, again, wiggle worm crawling, a tight burrito wrap, weighted blankets, having them do stuff like gardening or shoveling, giving them, you know, arm massages for like a spa day, coming up with obstacle courses that have them wiggle under chairs that gets their body into, you know, low crawling under over input kinds of things, hopscotch Bean bag, chair, pillow fights, safe pillow fights can be great impact related activities that sometimes parents would say to me, are you nuts? Like what kind of quack would tell me to take my wound up kid and pillow fight with him? Here's the part where you do have to know your own child and you will have done some research over the year just by default, but actually you'd be surprised for kids who need the input to soothe If you're not trying to have the pillow fight at 8.29 at night, if you're building it in earlier in the day, actually that kind of activity and input can be soothing for kids. They wind up initially and then they come back out of the pillow fight having had some regulation needs met. Again, you have to know your kid. You've got to know the timing. But this is an invitation to realize that some kids need the input to soothe. You may need to go off by yourself with headphones or to go on a walk outside quietly, but some of our kids really need crash, smash, bang, yell, roll, dive in order to not only exert energy, but organize and regulate. So if you do have a kiddo who is more sensory sensitive and, and does need to remove, or, or if your child is in a space where you can see they're overwhelmed and that adding input is going to be stressful, Think about creating a cave somewhere in your house, a little cool down corner, a tent of some kind. It can be with a blanket over chairs. It can be one of those play castle things. It can be one of those tubes that comes in where what what that does is limit visual input. It limits auditory input. There's only so much stuff they can touch in there and it and it helps their system calm because it's not getting as much input. The snow globe I mentioned earlier is a soothing kinds of thing. Have them. Watch the fish in a fish tank. Um, have them relax with an eye pillow, cooling eye gel things that make them feel fancy and also are limiting input. And if you get those, there's these cool, I don't know, Swedish stones you can put in the fridge and they're cool and you set them on your eyes. And so then you're getting temperature and limited eye stimulation, putting on white noise, having them listen to soft music, snuggle with soft materials. There's, there are a lot of ways we can think about soothing and nurturing our kids' agitated beings. Some of the other cool tandem activities, if you're imagining also, what does it look like to help your child stay regulated in between challenging behaviors? Draw with shaving cream together on a, in a baking pan or something, right? That's, that's input. Some kids really like having their hands dirty and messy and fine motor learning. Do some beading or jewelry making. Origami. Kinetic sand is awesome to play with together for, for fine motor input and can be kind of mesmerizing. You know, finger painting, weaving, coloring. There's so many great. It's not a coincidence that adult coloring is more and more a thing during COVID, by the way. Slime. Cutting soap. There's a cool YouTube thing where people like, Cut safely. You don't want to encourage any kid to be cutting things that that they're not age appropriate to do. But lots of cool ways to be next to your child doing something, soothing, helping them stay online, and front loading those activities intermittently during your day with intention to avoid the mounting escalation that happens when a kid's regulation needs aren't met. So I want to say a quick thing about why this matters. So why does this matter <laughs> in terms of how will you, like, why do we think about stuff from a sensory standpoint? So I think about, for instance, um, there was a child that I knew who was bathing resistant, hated to shower or bathe, couldn't, it was battle all the time. And also happened to be that this child didn't, didn't like uh, pockets did not want pockets on pants, had to have sweatpant material next to their skin, just, and I, and I knew that about them, but, and then the bathing refusal. And so I was trying to think, you know, normally classic psychology would say like, how can we, you know, work with them, play songs, let them draw with crayons in the tub, give them something really rewarding in the tub, uh, or in the shower, um, Trauma psychology might think, oh gosh, maybe something happened to this child in the bathroom. So uh, again, how can we make it soothing? What are we going to do to make it safe? How do we convince them that they're, they're safe from adults who will be safe with their bodies in the bathroom? So those are kind of classic behavioral examples of interventions and then how we think about things through a trauma lens. That's obviously a whole other training, but for now. But from a sensory standpoint, an OT involved in the case suggested that it might be that the water that that there's some thigh sensitivity there right leg and thigh doesn't like pockets only has to wear sweatpants if something's going on with some sensitivity in that area that that maybe the water is too much specifically talking about showers the temperature is too intense or the pressure is too intense and that this little person should be able to wear biking shorts in the shower and the biking shorts were like magic the kid got into the shower and It clearly was because the water was too intense on this part of the body that was really hypersensitive to touch. I I would not have believed it had I not known about this up close. (laughs) And it would never have occurred to me in 15 years of working with kids and families, if a parent came in saying their child was refusing the shower, it would never in a million years have occurred to me to suggest biking shorts. Now I wish everything was as straightforward as biking shorts. It's not. But that's an example that i use because if i thought it was behavioral and he was just refusing because he didn't want to or she was too happy playing legos to want to get in there so we just need to like force the issue and and make it happen you're going to approach it differently than if you think, is there something in the temperature that's too much? What's the sensation? Should I try a bath or a shower if I have an option? Can they wear a speedo or biking shorts or a bathing cap if their head is super sensitive? Right? Like, what are our options? So, that's a for me, it's an example of the different ways we think about refusing to bathe. Or if you have a a, a child who hits a parent, if you're thinking that it's willful, you think, oh they just don't like hearing no, so they freaked out after they heard no, right? If you think this is a child who experienced trauma, then you imagine that they're in fight or flight and they're, they're panicky about something and like, what was the trigger? Was it a sound that used to remind them of an, an abusive prior placement or parent? Was it a time of day that reminded them of family arguments in their past? You, you would sort of explore what the trauma triggers were, right? If you're looking at it from a sensory standpoint, then you think, wow, this kid really needs like deep tissue, like he needs impact. This is a kid who seeks impact. And and I'm talking about younger kids. I mean, when your 14-year-old who hauls off and hits a parent, I'm not, that's a different conversation. I'm talking about younger, younger kids who who are lashing out. So lashing out, hitting is you can really think about that as a as a sensory need, I mean, perhaps a combination of of having a difficulty changing gears, not doing well during transitions, having been upset or overstimulated earlier, and in their state of dysregulation, they are seeking more strong input. I am in no way or means excusing behavior like striking a parent. And I think this is a really sweet spot where you kind of have to be a believer and is why it's important to understand the sensory piece that I talked about in episode one of this two-part series. It's important to know that we're not, by saying, oh, my kid is dysregulated. Oh, there's a lot going on. The sights are too much, the sounds too much. They didn't get enough uh, spinning, swinging, jumping energy today. I'm not excusing behavior that happens. I'm explaining it. There's an explanation. And when my kid is regulated over time, there are ways that we talk about, you know, what happens when you're not using safe hands and feet. But in the moment, if I become enraged with my child who's lashing out and not doing well and want to overpower and scold and we do not hit, that it you're just going to be biting, fighting, battling it out lizard brain to lizard brain, right? So understanding that your kid may need a way to crash, bang, slam, get them re-regulated and then talk about safe hands and feet, do a do-over of the situation where they were able to let you know they were frustrated and needed a break and do the skills building that is actually gonna change the behavior in the long run. That changes behaviors in the long run more than taking away something. So I'm not excusing behavior. I'm not looking past the need to change it. I'm using what I understand about kids and attachment and sensory functioning to shape how you think about shaping your child's behavior in the long term, right? A harsh punishment or a quick punishment might stop the behavior in the short term. It might stop the behavior in the short term, but not change it in the long term because there's a skill building piece there and a regulation piece. So do you want the behavior stop now? Or do you want it changing over time as your child grows and learns and understands? So some quick thoughts about why it's important to understand the difference between what we do when we think about a behavior as sensory related versus if we tell ourselves they're, they're doing it on purpose. <laughs> so I borrow from the work of Dr. Karen Purvis, the TBRI Institute, and Dan Siegel. And when I really push the issues that in a nutshell, kids who've experienced attachment trauma so this is again for folks who are parenting foster or adoptive youth or kids who've lost a really significant attachment in their life we see patterns of dysregulation with emotions with attention with behavior Um, Episode one talks a little bit more about why we think that is. But in a nutshell, kids who have experienced attachment trauma need to be soothed and calm before you can reason and teach. We know the reasoning and teaching has to happen. It will happen. It's a longer term investment and you must soothe first and shape the behavior second. Now this can be a challenge, right? Because to many people, it looks like you gotta be a believer. This is what I say too. You got to be a believer. To many people outside who aren't parenting kids from hard places or foster adoptive kids, it looks like you're giving in and doing soothing things. If you respond to bad behavior with swinging, or here's your snow globe, or why don't we get you a heating pad? (laughs) I guarantee you, mark my word, think of this day when you start trying these things that your people around you will be like, Have you lost? So you're going to give them something they want after they just you know struck you at the dinner table or whatever so it takes really believing that you're not quote giving a kid something they want you are helping them regulate helping their body switchboard sensory switchboard begin to function so that they can soothe so that they can learn and so just prepare yourselves for the naysayers and the critics and the people rolling their eyes they're out there they love us We love them. They mean well. (laughs) They're not in the same uh, daily dilemmas and beautiful complexities that those of us who are parenting kids who have some sensory processing needs are. So they mean well. Again, we love them, they love us, and it can be different parenting when you have a child who has a sensory processing issue. And, and so you gotta believe that, you gotta buy in, otherwise you're gonna feel anxious about other people's judgment of you and your anxiety is gonna trip up your kids and you've both escalated gloriously together as a result. So so trust the process. Um, remember this moment in this podcast when the people around you start giving you feedback that what you're doing is only gonna make things work and, and know that soothe first, shape the behavior later right so so how do you apply this stuff as we're thinking today one building soothing things into daily routines number one anticipate what is going to be difficult during the day as we said right notice the patterns in your child's dysregulation when who what where why what all of the triggers are for your kids misbehavior equally important big takeaway equally important when is your child organized and cooperative when are they at their best what is happening in their sight smell taste touch sound body and movement when they are cooperative and listening and 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 um, gentle with themselves and others right learn from that to inform you what the se- possible um sensory soothers may be if as you come to understand your child, whether your child needs more input to stay regulated bouncing running moving wheelbarrows all those things i mentioned or less quiet time enforced and built in limited sensory input in a variety of ways headphones waiting in the car when they get in after school or a fort in the car when they get in after school with a blanket they can hide under and headphones like do they need sensory do they need things limited to stay organized or do or do they need more input to stay organized and then build sensory activities along those lines into your day. Just make them part of your family routine. Have some kind of sensory um, event just before dinner, if dinner is really hard, rather than waiting for dinner to happen and then trying to figure out the consequence to give your kid. Yep, it takes some more work up front to get stuff to happen. It does. Sorry. (laughs) Believe me, I know firsthand. Um, And... Build those into the day at intervals so that your child's almost not even just letting off steam. Part of it is letting off steam, but it's actually also organizing. It's not just letting off pent up energy. It is building bridges in the brain, connecting and communicating between right and left sides of the brain. It is soothing and calming for kids so that they can tolerate more. Um, Right. So when upset is unavoidable. So you've done your work. You've done it. You know what times of day your kid tend to kind of go, go, go off a little bit. You are aware of who's around. You're aware of how do you got to keep softer voices or more firm voices. You're aware of what needs to happen. You have figured out what kind of um, sensory seeker or avoider or which part of their nervous system is most keyed up. You've checked out the list of triggers and soothers on my website and you're familiar with them. You've been using them preventatively, and darn it, upset is unavoidable. It still happens, right? We wish it didn't. Prevention is an enormous piece of this recipe, but you're still going to have meltdowns, big feelings, outbursts, hard moments. It happens. So even having done your preventative work, you're still going to have moments of upset. What I see over time in my living room couches and office couches are they will be less frequent and less intense if you're doing the preventative work. And that's what we want. Less frequent, less intense upset and dysregulation. So when the upset happens, right? So you've done all your prevention, thought about the times of day that are tricky, you've built in some activities based on how you're thinking about your kid as a sensory being, and um, you have done the groundwork, laid the foundation. That's awesome. That's most of the battle around this stuff. When upset, big feelings, tantrums, meltdowns, defiance, no's happen, soothe first, shape the behavior later. Key element of being able to soothe, you must stay soothed yourself. So, so very much easier to say than to do. (laughs) I'm a captain of I meant well. I am captain she meant well. And I understand that it's not easy to stay regulated when kids should be able to do what's being asked of them in our mind's eye, right? Or when we're on a mission and we've got a ton of stuff to get done and our little one is throwing wrenches and things, it's hard to stay regulated and it's key to keeping things from escalating. So learning to take deep breaths through the nose and out your mouth, that impacts the nervous system, lowering your tone of voice, speaking more slowly, swaying or finding a rhythm it's really interesting that that sort of parent rock that happens when you imagine yourself with an infant or a toddler on your hip and you just kind of notice that you gently sway there there's a rhythmic soothing attachment based thing about swaying that helps kids calm so if you're just back on your heels palms up and you notice a little side to side sway that can have an immense energetic impact on a kid who's losing it and also notice your what story you're telling yourself about why to stay regulated what if you remember they're they're not able to do something they're supposed to they're dysregulated something is too much for them right now you know and not personalize and 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 not make it character not take it personally yourself and not make it about your kid's character um and we'll talk more in future episodes specifically around parent soothing. But, but you being able to stay calm so that you can help your child stay calm is critical. Um, as I mentioned, if you have big meltdowns, don't be afraid of using some, for, for kids who are really energetic and, and like sensory seeking, often that's a profile that goes along with big tantrums and meltdowns and acting out. Do, do not be afraid to have a kid who's starting to wind up go do cartwheels or rush out to a swing set and put a kid on a swing who's not doing well inside or bounce on a yoga ball. It will look to others as if you are rewarding bad behavior and that's okay. Because most of us, by the time we come to thinking about behavior differently like this, we've tried all of the other things. We've tried the threatening the consequences. We've tried the getting bigger. We've tried the, the um, march you to a time in on the stairs kind of a thing. Um, and then and I'll use that. I was doing time ins for a while. The theory is with adopted kids, you don't do time outs because that suggests to them when their behavior is unacceptable. You, they will be separated from people they care about. And we just want to break that, that link for adoptive kids. Um, Time-ins, sitting with them, away from activity, helping them soothe, is in theory something that can work for lots of kids. My kid just wanted to wrestle <laughs> because he is the kid who needs big in, input when he is stressed out. He did it that particular time. And so time-in just turned into a Greco a wrestling scene between the two of us, and that's not good just for, again, for the record, not good, not the desired outcome, Dr. Anderson. So, um, I just learned that when he, when I would have put him in a time in, cause he was escalating somewhere, then he needed to get to swings. He needed to be doing cartwheels. We needed to roll down hills in the grass until he could laugh and was re-regulated. And then if there were consequences that needed to happen around what had been done, then we, you know, Put those in place and handle it. But do not be afraid of doing things that look to others like you're rewarding a bad behavior because you know the bigger theory. So you got to (laughs) believe. So basically, every day, day in and day out, first of all, step one, know what reorganizes and soothes your child. Step two, recognize where the common triggers or times of day are that are tricky. Step three. As the triggers approach, build in more soothers. Build in the things that you know actually regulate your child. And hopefully there, the cycle just keeps going like that, right? If it's a day where everything is still too much and agitation builds and meltdowns begins, think about soothing first, shaping later. Then you're able to connect and reflect with your child and do the teaching you need to do. And if there are consequences for safety, etc. There are ways to negotiate those at that point in time. So that's the cycle. That's what it looks like. And that's kind of what I wanted you to come away with today thinking about. Uh, There's more to say about this. Always these podcasts could go on for hours and hours. 25 years is a long time to have worked with kids and families. I'll leave you with these thoughts. By focusing on soothing first, you're helping a kid learn to regulate, which is huge, especially for kids whose earliest attachments We're not able to for a variety of of, understandable and otherwise reasons. It's really important for kids from hard places or kids who didn't have the consistent dance of attachment happening for them in their lives. So by focusing on soothing, you're helping a kid learn to regulate. You are literally building bridges in your brains. The brains are plastic. They change. They're mutable. What we do and how we show up for our kids shifts some of those early tough starts and can reinforce emotional messaging as well as literally build pathways in the brain. You're also, by focusing on soothing first, decreasing the likelihood that shame and repeated failure is gonna happen when kids can't regulate. If kids are dysregulated and we don't understand the sensory piece or how to soothe them, and they're following classic behavioral plans with point systems or surfboard sizes or whatever's happening in your kid's classroom or at home they will fail and then they feel ashamed and guilty and if you're the parent trying to do it with behavioral points and plans and rewards you feel as if you failed right so we're hoping to minimize the sense of failure and shame and maximize the confidence and the learning that your child can, can learn to come back online when they're offline. And it's modeled for them, and you're connecting with them while they do it. Super critical stuff. Final takeaways of this two-part series on sensory processing. One, the story we tell ourselves about our children's behavior truly shifts how we respond. Imagine that their system is overloaded, overwhelmed, dysregulated rather than thinking of them as willful or difficult or something's wrong with them, right? Our kids' behavior makes us nervous sometimes. We worry that something is wrong. We don't know why our kids have a hard time with situations that seem unexpected to us. So the story we tell ourselves about our children's behavior shifts whether or not we can stay calm and regulated to model that for them. Second piece, you hear this in a couple of my episodes, it is a marathon marathon. A sharp consequence may stop a behavior in the moment. It might, but it's probably gonna come with some serious escalation. And what we know in terms of the long run is that it's the connection, attachment, and brain building that we want to happen. That you're gonna have lots of opportunities to shape and soothe, and you're in it for the long haul. Kids do the best they can. They really do. They do the best they can with what they were given. Sure, they're naughty sometimes. Sure, they're testing limits. Sure, they're trying to test their agency in the world. For the most part, that's part of learning. It's appropriate, it's developmentally appropriate. They do the best they can with what they have, what they've been given, and what they know to do already. Final thought attachment is the greatest change agent. It really is being able to understand your child and teach them how to understand themselves and to think about dysregulation and re-regulation as a process that happens hundreds of times a day that they can learn more and more and be in control of and be in charge of and be in in, 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 in sync with is super powerful in the long run of their lives. So attachment is the greatest change agent for our kids over time, especially for children who've had Uh, attachment losses. If you're wanting to learn more about folks who talk about this kind of thing, there's Sensory Integration International is a group that does good work. Find a local occupational therapist where you're specifically talking about sensory processing issues. Uh, The Out of Sync Child, Recognizing and Coping with Sensory Processing Disorder is a book that's well known. Making Sense of Sensory Integration, second edition is another great book. And there's a resource for teachers. Teachers ask about sensory integration. So there are some additional resources to help you learn about this. And I can't say enough, as you heard in episode one, but to reiterate, this knowledge and this way of thinking about child behavior really changed what was happening in my home and the homes of my clients even after decades of work as a child psychologist when i started integrating into this it's why episode one was called what i wish i knew i wish i had known from day one uh, what i what i know now although i'm learning every day too but what i know now about sensory systems it probably would have saved me many years (laughs) of of feeling like a failure and my kid feeling like a failure so Here's an invitation to you, an open door to learn more about sensory integration and how it can change your family's life too. I'm glad you were here. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say, I am so glad you joined and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www drlauraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter, keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, on Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.